I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is Elisa Haggerty. Elisa was recommended to me by Elina Santange, if you remember, who was a guest on Slow Mo back last spring and became a very dear friend of mine and a constant contributor to our work, especially in the promos that you see online in my social media about Slow Mo. And she recommended Elisa because she follows her on Instagram and finds that her posts are very inspiring and educational of wisdom that one can acquire as we go through difficult times in life. I researched Elisa quite a lot. And of course, if you want the formal introduction, she's a functional nutritionist, a lifestyle expert. Uh, She founded Culinary Pharmacy, uh, which was basically a business that is about providing nutritional advice. Uh, She's the head of learning and culture uh, for Parsley Health. And um, she practices root cause resolution you know, in her work, which basically is all about working to find the triggers of disease in the human body and in our psyche, if you want. And she provides practical action steps on how to address health goals. But the reason I was very intrigued to bring Elisa as a guest for you today is what I hope will be revealed in the conversation is an approach to find wisdom and learning in everything and yet stay playful and open to life something that I really felt through her presence online and hope we'll be able to capture for us in our conversation today. So join me and slow down as I speak to a new friend, Elisa Haggerty. I want to start by getting to know you. I know from your story that you never really wanted to be the person that you are today, coach, a trainer, a nutritional expert, and so on and so forth. You wanted to be a teacher. This is how you started. Yes, that's true. And then life didn't want you to be a teacher, it seems. Would you tell us your story as openly as you would be open to? Oh my God. Yeah. Thank you for the intro and for having me. Yeah. So I grew up admiring very much my father, who was a high school English teacher and a basketball coach. And um, when I was growing up in school, you know, I had a hard time with academics. I never really excelled in math or sciences, but I did do pretty well, like A minus, A plus in English lit. So it was the only course that I felt confident in. And it was all because it was stories and people. And that made sense to me on some level, or at least it um, sort of woke me up a little bit. It made me very engaged. And then the other thing I excelled in in my early years was basketball and sports. It was the one place where I was safe. I could be strong. I could be vocal. People looked up to me. I was able to see translation right away from running up hills and playing outside with my brothers into success on the court. And so, yeah, I grew up wanting to be like a high school English teacher. And I wanted to be a high school basketball coach and do that for 35 years and then retire. There was absolutely no other idea or fantasy in my mind that I could be anything else. Because from the time I was probably in eighth grade, that was all I really got positive feedback on. So I just figured I would do what my dad did and I would um, pursue that career. And I did for the first couple of years, for two years 
in New Jersey, I was a high school English teacher and uh, coach basketball for the women's team. And then I moved to Hong Kong and I taught as well and uh, coached as well. But before my teaching career began, I got into a really bad car accident. I was riding my bike down a hill. I had just graduated college and uh, yeah, I got hit by a car. And uh, <laughs> luckily I had a helmet on, but basically I suffered what's called a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. Um, I was unconscious for many hours and I basically woke up the next day. They brought me back to my house and my parents and my sister took care of me and gave me drinks and liquid and just helped me relax from that sort of concussion. But there was no like diagnosis or like treatment plan. You know, my brain was basically inflamed and they just kind of said back then, you know, just rest. And now we know a lot more about the brain. We know a lot more about what a TBI can do to someone emotionally, mentally, physically. Anyway, so I woke up the next day with basically clinical depression. I had had none of that my whole life. Of course, I was like a, I had sports anxiety, I had performance anxiety. But then I woke up after that car accident and I thought it was a Tuesday and I wasn't sure I'd make it to Thursday, kind of like narrative. And it was really dark. And I was like, what the, this is not me. This is not my normal life. And um, there had been a history of like depression in my family for sure. I think that's very common, but I never felt like I understood it. I was kind of like, what's the big deal? Just work hard and do your best and have fun. I had a very I had a lot of depth, but I hadn't experienced depression. And so since that point, you know, my first couple of years as an English teacher and, you know, high school coach, I was in that profession, but I was starting to play with ways that I could help get myself off these medications that I was given. And the medications were useful. I think they calmed me down, helped me feel stable, but they never helped cause or solve the root problem, right? They never helped the neuroinflammation. They never helped me sort of um, adopt new mindsets and beliefs. And so what I started to do in those that year after the accident was I started to meditate because I knew I had to find a way to make friends with my thoughts. I knew I had to find a way to make friends with the narrative in my head and to change the narrative and to catch it and to change it thousands of times a week for sure, or else, you know, it wasn't going to be good. And I just, unfortunately, I felt very neglected by the medical community. I felt like they just kind of numbed me and gave me medications and raised them until you know, I had happier thoughts and that didn't seem to make sense to me. So I meditated. I started to become a vegan because I wanted to explore how food could improve my mood. I was very much a sugar addict. I grew up as the youngest of seven kids in a family. And so we had a lot of pasta, a lot of bread, a lot of pizza, a lot of sugar. They're just the natural American diet, standard American diet, I should say. And so I meditated. I cleaned up my diet of sugar and this was all just like on my own. I had no education or training at this point. And, um, I cleaned up my my whole lifestyle and I found that I was waking up earlier. You know, I used to struggle to get out of bed. And even though I was like a college athlete and I was really quite strong and I had a lot of muscle, I couldn't get out of bed till 11 o'clock. I would hit snooze. I really had a hard time with focus. I had a hard time with emotional regulation, especially post-concussion. And then as soon as I started eating like grilled veggies and bean salads, I was waking up at 7 a.m. ready to go for a run. And I was like, who's this person? This is so weird. So I found a relationship between observing my thoughts. And I found a great relationship between food and mood. And I thought as I was teaching, I was playing with these things. And I was like, this is actually more powerful to me than grammar and storytelling. (laughs) I think that I need to create a career this way. Because when I was in Hong Kong, I started to see a lot of my students who were from Taiwan and mainland China and Hong Kong, they were having obesity issues, they were having mood disorders, they were having all kinds of things that I actually had been experiencing. And I thought, there's something in the water here. It's something about how you eat and how you live. And I knew that, you know, medications are certainly helpful. They're viable. They save lives, but they can't be the only way we approach mental health. And so I said, I need to stop teaching English. Like I was completely called to start my own 
nutrition coaching practice and begin helping people in that way. This is actually very relevant to all of us, I would say. I mean, the relationship between diet, between our state, our mood, and our well-being in general, I think is almost neglected for everyone. We rush through life. One of the things I struggle with really, really, really badly in the lockdown is the idea of Deliveroo and, you know, Uber Eats and all of that stuff that my friends and sometimes myself would get used to. It's like, yeah, it's just food. It's, you know, it's coming, it's cooked and Mm -hmm. it's ready and it saves you time and effort. This is something that a lot of people should wake up to. But why do you think we go so low, if you want, when it comes to taking care of our diet and our our moods and our well-being? Well, I think we have a society and a culture that primes us to have easy access to whatever we want, whenever we want. Everything from food to information. You know, we don't even, we don't even wonder anymore. (laughs) We don't even spend time in awe or curiosity because we could just Google it. Mm. And same thing with food. It's like, you know, we, same quick results. If we want pizza, it could be here in 20 minutes. So we have, it's sort of like, it's affecting our, our hardwiring in terms of need and, and result. And so I think we're, we're kind of primed from the moment we wake up to check a phone, to get fast data, fast food. And um, I think it's pulling us away from a more intentional way of living. I was having dinner with someone the other day and they said, oh, like you eat so healthy. And I was like, I don't, I don't know that I eat healthy. I just eat intentional. Like I'm intentional about how I eat because it's not super fancy. Even though I did go to some culinary school training, I, it's just not fancy. It's just, I want something that's local, fresh. I want to feel it. I want to smell it. I want to see texture and color on the plate. I don't care about calories. I care only about colors and flavor. And because of that, I have an intention that food is a space for me to like sit down, take care of my body and to experience it with someone, hopefully. Mm. When I started to consult in nutrition, there's a lot of ways you can go in that field. You know, there's calorie obsessed, there's methodology obsessed, like keto or bust. I mean, there's so much dogma, right? And I, I was very adamant then that that was not the way I wanted to approach. And it's still the way I approach food now. It's like, it's an experience. It's community focused. It could be community focused. It's not about calories. It's about color. And that's, that's still how I sort of approach food these days. It's a means for connection, not a means for disconnection and autopilot. I don't think that's how I approach health anymore. That is really, really interesting. You're the first nutritional expert that I hear say this. The typical way of we hear about it is if you want to stay fit, you're going to have to do something very, very, very rigidly. And a lot of people get super obsessed about it. I mean, the number of female friends that I have that will adore quinoa, even though they don't really like quinoa just because, you know, they have to stick to quinoa. You know, while I hear you sometimes talk about chocolate and cocoa, right? And the difference in opinion when it comes to, I'm going to stick to quinoa and leafy greens, and I'm never going to exceed 27 calories uh, on a plate or whatever the numbers are. Uh, yeah. While you're saying it's an experience, uh, that's a very different approach. Yeah, I think it's a different approach, but it's actually the most human approach. And it's the most historically relevant approach. <laughs> if you think about what we did with food thousands of years ago, absolutely no one was thinking about calories. Virtually no one was thinking about getting a leaner body. It's only more in the last 60 to 100 years where we want to be skin and, and lean. The most, if you look back into the Greek and Roman Empire, the women who are the most full-bodied and voluptuous, if you will, were actually seen as the ones who would be the best caretakers for children to carry on the generation. So this is sort of this weird obsession around food and basically what's called orthorexia, which is an obsession with health 
it's pretty new if you look at like the span of human existence. But in human existence, food was literally what brought tribes together. It's your, it was your job. Perhaps your whole life you were a hunter-gatherer, you were a farmer. And so now we have a complete disconnect from our world, our nature, and our food. And we operate through our phone, through communication, which I'd argue is not building much empathy. And then, you know, through food. You know, what makes me like really fired up is like people could list more corporations than they could vegetables. <laughs> like what the hell? Uh-huh. People could list more corporations than they could birds who are their neighbors. Like we live amongst an ecosystem, not even just food. We live amongst an ecosystem of trees and wildlife and things outside our door that if we open the door and we listen, they're singing, they're chirping. It's a connection to our world, right? And uh, people know more about Nike and Adidas and, you know, and I'm like, I I don't know. So like, no, (laughs) it's not working so far. That's a killer observation, as a matter of fact, that what we connect to. I mean, of course, you have to imagine that those corporations are investing billions of dollars to get our attention. And I think, sadly, they're succeeding. Sadly, they are pulling us away from what actually really matters, which is to live, which is to be connected, which is to connect to others, to nature, to your food, to your well-being, to your body, and so on. But it's such a killer observation that we, I probably know (laughs) And I admit this sounds really bad when I say it now, but I admit, yeah, I probably know more corporations than I know uh, birds in my neighborhood. That's actually true. That's sort of a thought that a lot of people who within the food community and also the ecology community have been commenting on for years. Um, Terry Tempest Williams is a naturalist and she's a writer and I love her work. And she also sort of echoes the same sentiment that we are so disconnected from our ecosystem. We live indoors, we barely see the sunrise, we barely see the sunset. We don't even know, like, again, the birds in our neighborhood or the flies in our neighborhood. And so we've just lost touch with our world. And so I think it's not weird what we're doing. I think it's weird. I think it's expected at this point, given the media, the marketing, the access to an iPhone. It's actually kind of understandable that humans are operating through their phones for human connection for food. Again, we're kind of running an uphill battle against media and marketing, but I think I think that's my biggest call to people is just that, you know, you don't have to devise a plan to overthrow Pepsi or Nabisco or Coca-Cola. You simply have to just walk out your door, leave your phone, take a walk around the park, get in, get it in like a state of observation and noticing. And then when you sit down to eat, you're going to have a very different experience. You might smell your food more. You might notice the colors more. You might want to share it more. You might not want to tweak the recipe next time. You become... Um, intentional in your interaction with the world and food when you just make a, a choice to put your phone down and uh, and live that way. And so when you when a client comes to you, they come asking for what? Are they asking for a better nutrition? Because you may actually come across as, I'm not going to help you lose weight. Oh, I don't. I don't. People come to me <laughs> yeah. all the time. And, and I just want to make it clear, I actually don't do nutrition consulting anymore. In the last three years, I've shifted over to doing conscious leadership consulting. I wanted to get there. Yeah. I have had people come to me in even the past couple of years or even months and say like, I want to lose weight. I believe it's my dinner or my breakfast. That's the you know root cause of my weight gain. I go back to kind of what I did for about 10 years, but more in this methodology, I'm just like, I mean, I go into question mode. I'm like, is it true that your dinner is the reason you're not losing weight? And is it true that you need to lose weight? Is it true that you're going to be single if you don't lose weight? And so I I kind of just go into like a questioning mode where we question our beliefs and we, you know, help them understand that they can love themselves, they can love their body, they can love their existence by not changing a damn thing, which is radical. Because again, if you open up your phone, 
you're programmed to believe that, you know, a little visceral fat or like not having like the leanest abs is a failure. And that's not the way that I think is going to lead to a joyful and creative life. My favorite, favorite quote of yours when I researched you was what you just said, which is, you don't need to change anything. Expand on this, please, Elise. So, so this is quite eye-opening, that most of us believe that, you know, I have to become thinner or get a better job or, you know, find a different partner or make more money or whatever that is to have a better life. But you're saying you don't need to change anything at all. Yeah. And so I, what I think this is really challenging, right? This is a life principle that I work with every single day. It's not something I understand intellectually and therefore I do it. It's like a practice, right? So what I'm going to share is basically that when we believe if we make more money, we'll be happier. When we believe we have a better partner, we'll be happier. When we believe we have a better house by the ocean, we'll be happier. We are believing that the world is happening to us, that we are at the effect of our partner, our job, our income, our socioeconomic status that gives us the house that's not by the beach. We are at the effect of the world, right? And so we are sort of in like a victim mindset. A lot of narratives that cause suffering have the word should. I should have more money. I should be having more sex. I should have a partner. I should have a house by the beach. I've never heard sentences with the word should that result in creativity, joy, and connection. Not really. Generally, they're resisting. They're resisting life. And so again, when you resist life, you're thinking life's happening to me. So I have to resist. I have to get what I want. And when you move to a state, which is a sort of a longer conversation, when you can move to a state to see that life is happening for you, for your growth, for your development, and you have the tools to be able to um, support that, like meditation and mindfulness and nature walking, all these things that I do all the time, you start to see that, you know, I'm living exactly where I'm supposed to be living right now. I'm making the exact amount of money that I'm supposed to be making for my growth. I'm with the exact person who I need who's triggering me for me to wake up and see why I'm triggered, for me to wake up and see my own neuroses. And so if I believe that all these things are happening for my growth, because life is, is generous, life is happening for me, then I'm not resisting. You know, I'm in a state of acceptance and allowing. I allow my emotions that come with them. I allow my feelings that come with them. And I'm no longer suffering. I can still want to live by the beach. I can still want to make more money. It's a preference. But I'm not hell-bent on those things happening for my happiness. And is happiness then leading to my well-being? And is my well-being then leading to my... I mean, some people would say it's not all about happiness at all. It's like, you know, I need to be successful. I need to provide for my family. I need to fit within society. These are different objectives that some people sometimes prioritize. Well, I don't really think a lot about happiness. I think a lot about curiosity. I think that happiness is not the opposite of depression. It's curiosity. When someone's depressed or they're in a dark state, their narrative and their thinking is quite closed. It's predictive. Generally, there's death involved. <laughs> Generally, you're alone. It's kind of predictive if you think about it, if you zoom out and observe it. And people often think, oh, you're sad, get happy. But what I'm saying is if people are sad and depressed, beyond the clinical help they might need, get curious. When you're curious, you're in a state of life is happening for me. How could this benefit me? Okay, I've been crying for half an hour. How can this benefit me? What is this sadness here to teach me? But if you're in a state of life's happening to me, okay, I've been crying for an hour. Something's wrong with me. I need to get on medication. I need to move. I need to get a new partner. And you believe you need to change your external environment. But when you believe life happens for you, you think sadness is here to teach you something. And that's the curiosity that you can then approach this beautiful emotion called sadness, which is one of the more informative ones. And then, and then your world opens up and you're more like, ooh, oh, there's something here. What do I need to let go of? What do I need to say goodbye to? 
I now I'm starting to understand your posts. So you post a lot about your dad, the state your dad is in, and how it's difficult. You're taking care of him. He's in, in a bit of a difficult stage for someone who's always been creative and giving and so on and so forth. And you seem to draw so much wisdom from it, Elise. So I love the, there was a post once, forgive me if I quote inaccurately, but about using your own hands to create things and how you can, you know, use the experience of having the ability to create, to actually learn something from a situation that you're in. And you seem to draw wisdom from situations where many people would just lay back and say, ah, I'm the victim. Life is really treating me bad. Tell me a bit about this. I mean, you seem to always do that. Even when you were young and you had a car accident, you start to go like, okay, I need to look into my nutrition. This is a very rare, but very valuable skill. Tell us about this. Well, it's interesting. I think it does come from my dad in the way that both my mom and my dad helped raise me. But I would say that like to go back to the car accident, when I got the car accident and I had gone through a really hard time, I'd also lost a job, a teaching job soon after. And I was really upset about that. And I remember starting a blog called theluckyone.com. And I, I had a theory that I am I must be the lucky one because there's no way all these bad things would be happening to me in such a short period of time. This has to be happening for me to live. I don't believe I'm supposed to go out this way. And so I remember I had this firm belief because at that point when you're so depressed and you're so low and you're on this all this medication, you think the only thing you have is a power of belief. And so I believed that this must be happening for me and God would never want me to go out that way. And so I started a blog called The Lucky One. It only ran for like a year or two. But anyway, fast forwarding to my dad, I think that my dad showed us that. He taught us that. He maybe didn't say those words, but he always had this sort of perspective of making life work for you. Okay, like you play a basketball game, you go 0 for 10, you miss all your shots. That's okay. It's an invitation to get back in the gym and to master your shot more. And so a lot of this was infused by him, by athletics and saying, okay, you make a mistake, get back, let's make it better in some way. And so I think, you know, when I said to my mom recently, like maybe a year or two ago, when we were really in this tough place of figuring out how to support him during this really tender time in his life where he's pretty much devoid of, he doesn't have much autonomy, you know, he can't do much. He's kind of on the couch and he can sing and he can talk a little bit, but he really can't do things. And that is heartbreaking for him. But I said to my mom, look, we can't cure this. I think I thought in the beginning I could cure my dad's dementia for sure, because I was in nutrition and I was thinking fish oil sprints, get him some vitamins, get him a probiotic. I, I thought I could really reverse it. Perhaps I was quite bold and that didn't happen, but I think we slowed it, which is cool. And long story short, I said to my mom, like, look, we can't cure this, but we have to approach this the same way that he would. So I'm just trying to approach my dad the same way. I know that he would want to be approached the same way that if I was sick, he would be approaching me. When my aunt, one of my aunts got cancer years ago and he, he organized a bike ride to raise money for her. And he had her name on all their shirts. And so he was always that person who was like, oh, someone's sick or not well, let's collect each other, let's come together as a community and let's help this person. So I'm just trying to approach it the same way that I believe he would be. And so that approach would also, again, if you mind me asking, you're inspiring so many when you make a post like this. So it's not just you and him now, it's you and him and the rest of us, which I have to say takes a lot of courage, to be honest. Most people would just keep those stories inspiring as they are to their sort of closed room as they think about them at night rather than share so openly about them. So what drives you to do this? Um, I think it's expression, you know, like I'm not a visual artist, but I am an artist in some way. I think I use words <laughs> and stories, hopefully to, to create things. And I think that I might be here to do what my dad has done his whole life, which was to be a storyteller. 
when my dad was growing up, I think I was just born, he he ran the newspaper column in the local town in Pennsylvania. And every Sunday he'd write an article and he loved stories and he loved people. He was our family orator. He told stories and he made the toasts at the wedding and the toasts at the birthday parties. And I may not be that person, but I think through media and through my work and consulting and coaching, I think stories can heal. I think that there are, and I think that they can bring people together to do things that they otherwise never would have thought possible. And, and so I feel like expression to me is that, but it's also very, very healing. I feel the worst when I don't say the hard thing. I feel the worst when I keep it inside. In my uh, sort of coaching, I teach people that a withhold is something you think three times and haven't said. And man, that stuff ruminates and that stuff makes you not go to sleep at night. And that stuff makes you create narratives against other people, your boss, your partner. I mean, if you don't reveal what you're feeling, that's the recipe for depression. That's the recipe for self-addiction. So revealing to me is definitely cathartic. I hope I inspire people or help people see they're not alone, but selfishly a lot for me and my human experience. I don't know. I'd be quite sad, I think. <laughs> That's an, We don't want you to be sad, I think. Yeah. Well, sadness is cool in, in doses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We want to hear the stories. Your focus now is conscious leadership. I don't want to appear as if I know what you're doing, but you seem to be doing a lot more than conscious leadership. Tell me about the typical conversation you would have. I mean, why would someone seek your help? And what would be the typical conversation you would have? Well, I think people know that they need some sort of coaching or support when they keep having the same drama patterns repeat. And when they're ready to work with me, they're simply ready to explore the drama patterns and they want to end it. They want these drama patterns to go away, to dissolve. So that's really, really important that people start to see that their drama is repeating and that they no longer are okay with it. So it could be relational, could be business-wise, it could be through movement, could be through their sex life, whatever it may be. But whatever's happening, like I said before, they're operating under the sort of lens that life is happening to them. They're a victim, there's villains involved, they have people to blame. They sometimes become a hero, which means they temporarily solve things. And ultimately, the drama keeps repeating when you live through these sort of personas, these three personas, the victim, villain, hero. So when people are ready to shift that and get curious about their, their role in it, then they would work with me and it would be, it would be a really fun adventure of um, exploration and curiosity. So the idea here is you're trying to find those patterns. They're trying to say those patterns are not working for me. And is there a standard model to find those patterns and, sure. and debug them if you want? Sure. So, I mean, I, I use the methodology from the Conscious Leadership Group and their book, The 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership, is how I've been trained and how I operate with my clients. And so the first commitment is taking 100% responsibility for your mental, emotional health and committing to helping taking others to take 100% responsibility for their mental, emotional health. Commitment number two is being committed to curiosity. Commitment number three is feeling all your feelings to completion. I mean, if you just did those three things for the rest of your life, you would have a completely different pathway. To take 100% responsibility for my mental, emotional health means if I get a parking ticket and it's $200, I can eat. I have choices. I can walk around and be like, I can call everyone on my Rolodex of phone. I can say, you wouldn't believe it. I got my fifth ticket. New York City sucks. I, I hate this. And I'm going to start blaming. And then I'll go into hero mode and say, well, it's fine. I'll just make more money. And then I might go into victim mode and be like, oh, I'm so scared. I'm so tired of losing money. And I have this drama pattern, but I keep it going because of gossip and blame. And I can then, I can choose that pathway, which is the pathway most people do. They become apathetic, annoyed, blame others. Or I can say, this is happening for me in some way. 
I can feel my feeling to completion, which is sad. And then I can move on and I can say, this is actually helping me um, live a life of curiosity and openness to learn. Hmm. I think this is actually quite enlightening in many, many ways. The one thing that maybe I want to close with is, again, I've tried to watch many of your videos and they happen to be very different because I think you have had several stages of coaching. So there were a few of them that were completely about nutrition, others that were completely yeah. about embodiment and so on and so forth. And in every one of them, the one common theme was actually what you just said. I'm in charge, going to feel what I feel. I'm going to get on top of it and I'm going to do what I need to not get stuck in that drama. And then there was that one talk where I saw, I don't know if I should say a fully different side of you, which was about playfulness and curiosity and the kid inside and the idea of completely embracing life in flow. I was like, okay, I have to close with this conversation with you. So with that amount of discipline in you, how can you be so playful at the same time? Well, I mean, like they're all skills, right? Playfulness is a skill. Being serious is a skill. You can sharpen it every time you do it. You strengthen that neural pathway every time you're serious. I mean, you just get better and better about being serious. They're actually skills. And so I think about playfulness as that. That's why I go to nature a lot. Because I'm like, I'm looking at the birds and the ducks and they're never mad for more than four seconds. You know, they squawk and they make sounds, but then they go back about their life. And I'm like, well, what do we have to learn from them? They don't seem to have family feuds for decades. <laughs> they don't <laughs> seem to have negative Facebook posts. They just seem to feel their feeling to completion and then they move on and they play. So to me in conscious leadership, you know, getting people to a place of play means that they not only believe that life is happening for them, or at least some of the time they believe that, but they understand that when we're serious, we're suffering. When we're playful, we're open. We're playing with life. Life isn't happening to me. I'm playing with life. I'm making a game of things. The way that I've started to see life is that you win if you have the most fun. Whoever has the most fun wins. They win energetically, spiritually. They likely win financially. They're probably going to win sexually because they have fun. They're there to express, they're there to reveal, they're there to feel their feelings to completion, which by the way, in neuroscience only takes about maximum 90 seconds for you to feel feeling. And then you express it and then you get a chance to say, okay, how can I play with this today? And look, that's a skill, like that's really hard. It's taken me years to be able to adopt that methodology into my life. But I think the game is in life is who can have the most fun. That is incredible, by the way. I have to say, I will play this again when we're done recording because this is really, really, really cool. How do you have fun? So tips and tricks for those of us who have been, I'm not one of them, just between you and I, uh, for those of us who have been trained to be very serious, how do we stop being too serious and start to enjoy life and have fun? Well, I mean, I think, again, it's not that you, I want to just make an asterisk here. It's not that you have something hard happen to you and you jump into fun, playful mode. You feel your feeling to completion. It might take you couple hours to cry and feel the feeling and then stop the narrative. And then you move to a place of how can this, you ask a simple question, how can this happen for me? How is this here to benefit me? And then after that, you felt the feeling, you understand that there's an opportunity for growth. There's an opportunity for learning. And then you can get into a playful mode. So just so anyone who's listening can't go right into play from trauma. You know, we have to feel the feeling. We have to take responsibility. But anyway, the way I play, I mean, honestly, like I'm huge into nature. I'm huge into like I have cats, so I'm like always taking videos of my cats because they're just like fascinating, you know, like they fight and then they're over it and then they're loving each other. And so that's always fascinating to me. And then I love nature. I think it teaches us a lot. I think uh, we've lost our sort of connection with nature and we can regain that almost any time. 
then wake up in the morning worried about, okay, so what will happen to my job in six weeks time? And Fully, all the time. That's why I do this work. We teach what we actually need to master. And I don't think mastery is that you do it all the time. Mastery is that you fail, you work on it. You have a rough day of seriousness and then you have a day where you lift yourself up. Mastery is actually being able to ebb and flow through your emotional states. It's actually to have emotional confidence that I can be worried in the morning when I woke up about my job or my income, but emotional confidence and mastery just means that I can feel that feeling and I know that it'll pass and I'm going to go to a place of um, creativity and joy and I know that will pass and then I'll have another wave of sadness and worry and I know that will pass. So emotional mastery and confidence is being agile with your experience. But I do, I wake up worried. I worry still about my dad. I worry about everything. I mean, I'm human. The whole point of this isn't to get rid of it. It's just to ask, how can I play with this to make my human experience a bit lighter and more joyful, you know? I know, and I love. But I love Disney movies to answer your question too. <laughs> I love watching like <laughs> Finding Nemo and like Frozen. I think the characters are brilliant. I love the movie Soul that came out recently. I think it's a Pixar movie. Which one was that? Uh, it's called Soul. I believe it's a Soul. Pixar I have movie. not seen. I have actually not seen that. Any views on Despicable Me specifically or Secret Life of Pets? Just to know where you stand oh. on the spectrum. Secret Life of Pets for the win. Absolutely. I think everyone should go watch it. (laughs) Absolutely. It's like, don't sit down and listen to podcasts. Just do what matters in life. Secret Life of Pets matters. You know, Despicable Me matters. Shrek, if you're into that classic style. I'm with you. I'd also say that the movie Inside Out, which is another sort of cartoon Disney movie, it's all about emotions and the brain and how they work and how they sort of like direct this little character's life in the movie. So Inside Out, I would say, when you're feeling like life is really serious, go watch Secret Life of Pets. And, um, you know, I said to my uh, girlfriend today, I said, if I had a secret power, it would actually be that I could know what animals are thinking all the time. Like <laughs> that would be the most fun thing to me, you know? And that's how my brain works. I go outside and I'm kind of like, whoa, like look at that squirrel. Like I just, <laughs> you know, I just, I want to be in the world. I want to be with the world. I don't want to be ruminating about my job or the worry about life. So that's not an existence that serves me or anyone else. So. I don't understand why specifically squirrels, but I have to agree with you. Someone <laughs> needs to figure out what squirrels think. Because honestly, those guys, like, okay, let's go up the tree. That's, I think that's as far as they go, basically. It's like, let's go up the tree. That's the thought of today. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am really, really, really grateful for what you brought to us today. In such a simple way, by the way, Elise, I think you tend to, uh, to make it look easy. And, you know, it's really wonderful to see you exploring your own life and sharing it with the rest of us in such an interesting way. So I'm very grateful for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really fun to, to talk to you and kind of have the conversation evolve through the years and also through the different sort of methodologies. And I'm happy to be in a place where, you know, my objective is to have the most fun and to see where I can play with things. And it's not always easy and I don't always do that, but that's the skill that I'm cultivating and helping others cultivate. So. So there you have it. I really got some very interesting tips and gold nuggets today. I think the idea of playfulness post embracing and living our emotions fully is something that is definitely, uh, definitely something that we could all benefit from in today's world. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please share what you learned and find me on uh, social media to tell me more about what you think. I always feel so tremendously grateful for you listening to Slow-Mo and spreading it to give me an alibi to reach out and meet so many interesting people that teach me and hopefully you a little bit new every time we have a conversation. So now you can go back to your busy life and 
rushing around, but I want to remind you that regardless of how busy you are, there's always time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.